them to overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are playing Final Fantasy VI. I'm your host, Ben Adams, back from my solo adventuring. And, you know, I leave Pete Fenzel in charge around here for one week, and the world ends. Literally ends. Just because I, I disappear. So clearly this, this, this book club needs a little, a little sprucing up. Uh, this is the fifth episode of our, uh, our Final Fantasy, or pardon me, the sixth episode of our Final Fantasy VI book club. We have a bit of change of plans this week. Uh, our party has been scattered to the four winds, and uh, I've woken up on an island here with, uh, with fellow overthinker Shana Miloski. Hey, Shana. Hey, Ben. Um, and I'm really sorry that the world ended, but at least we're together, right? Right. You know, nice? It's, it's a nice idyllic setting. There's, you know, birds and waves in the background. It's, it's quite nice. And that ominous organ music in the background is not terrifying at all. We're just going to enjoy it. It's kind of beautiful. Right. Um, but I'm really excited, um, Ben, because uh, if anyone listens to the Comedy Bang Bang podcast, um, when Ben Schwartz was on, they had what is called a solo bolo, where it was just the host and one person. So we're solo boloing, Ben. This is me and you. You're Sid and I'm Celis. Or we could switch and you can be Celis and I'll be Sid. We, we're not gender essentialists here. So, yeah, this is us doing it. Uh, two people style and also i want to add that i'm glad that you're hosting because although pete was an excellent host last week i did have one complaint which was that he did not talk nearly enough about ultros there was almost zero conversation about him at all and so i'm glad you're back picking up the slack for pete so thank you for that ben you're, you're welcome, and we can we can try and talk about Ultros. So I, that uh, we'll have to see if we can work it into our topic. If we don't talk about Ultros enough, uh, you know, listeners, you can sound off uh, in the in the forums if if you want to hear more about Ultros. But uh, but until our party can be uh, reconstituted here, we're going to be heading off on a bit of a side quest. We're going to delay talking about uh, week five. So if you've fallen behind, a uh, little time to catch up here. And we're just going to be talking about the end of the world. Because, you know, what could be more important than the end of the world? So, so Shana and I are going to head off on a little side quest. We're going to eat some fish, but uh, only the good ones. Uh, we're not going to eat the, the bad, slow ones. And we're going to talk about uh, the end of the world in fiction, uh, in kind of video games specifically. And, and one interesting feature about the end of, uh, the, end of the world here. So it, since it's just the two of us, we're going we're gonna to throw all the rules out the window. And uh, let's, let's go with the question of the week. Let's go nuts. Uh, for, for our book club only listeners, the, the Overthinking It uh, mainline podcast every week likes to do a question of the week. So, uh, Shayna, what's your favorite end of the world? Well, I'm going to try extremely hard not to answer that question with Independence Day. We so, will not uh, go violently into the night. No, we will not no. go without a. Fo- sorry, sorry. You say you say it, and it just happens instinctually. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, what happened was that you kick the tires and light the fires, and you can't stop after that. Um, so, yeah, I understand. That's fine. So, I'm just I'm going to run away from that example, and instead, I'm going to go with uh, one of my other favorite properties, which is Adventure Time, um, which is a show that is a Candyland, pastel, magical, post-apocalyptic society um, where it seems that all these uh, cute figures that are made out of candy and other adorable 
substances are really just mutants uh, that were created by some sort of uh, radiation hundreds or even thousands of years before Adventure Time starts. Um, there is a lovely flashback episode called Simon and Marcy where um, the Ice King, this is spoiler, so I guess shut off the podcast and never listen to it again if you don't want spoilers for Ad- Adventure Time. But um, the Ice King, who is sort of the villain of the show, um, in the flashback, he's actually a mild-mannered uh, scientist fellow um, who's quite lovely. And in this post-apocalyptic landscape, he finds Marceline, who is like a little child um, at the time. Uh, she's the vampire queen, of course. Um, and he sort of protects her almost as if they are in the road, but a much uh, less pessimistic version of the road. Um, I don't know if you know, but the road is kind of dark. Um, Adventure Time, a little lighter. Um, And the lovely thing about the episode, I think, is at the end where the Ice King um, tries to make Marceline feel better about the apocalypse by singing her the theme song from Cheers. And it was just such a moving moment for me because... um, Everyone didn't know uh, their names there because they were pretty much the only two people left on Earth. And uh, it brought a little tear in my eye, this cartoon for children. And I don't feel bad saying that. So I'm going to go with Adventure Time at the moment. And even though my soul is screaming out um, for Bill Pullman. But no, we're not going there. That movie is out of my mind, out of sight, out of mind. So that is my answer. Ben, what about you? What's your favorite? Well, that's, it's interesting that you, you kind of raise this image of just two people left on you know, a dead world. Because, of course, that's the scene that we open with uh, Sid and, and Ceres here, that we've got just two people, possibly only two people left in the world. And uh, it's actually similar to, to my answer. That, that, well, the, one answer is, of course, the end of the world as we know it, the song. But uh, I don't. I don't think I have the musical chops to try and recreate that here. So I'm going to go with Wally. Oh, uh, uh, that's a good choice. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. But of course, that you know, the first almost entire third of the movie is either Wally by himself, or just Wally and Eve kind of exploring this dead or and or dying world. Um, and there's just something very evocative about both the Wally world because it's you know this tiny little robot soldiering on in the face of impossible odds of trying to clean up all this mess uh but uh but there's something just evocative in general about just two people left in the whole world it's a very different image than just one person left uh for whatever reason it's not quite like the twilight zone episode where it's the one guy left and his glasses break which is very sad It, it would be very sad for me although i guess if i put the books really close to my eyes then the apocalypse wouldn't be so bad but uh i don't know We'll have to see when it happens, and I'm the only one left, because obviously I would be. That's just evident. But yeah, I love love Wally. So yeah, I I think in this game, you have these two people, Sid and Silas, on this island, um, but one of them is out of commission. Um, Actually, it switches. First, Silas is the one out of commission and being nursed back to health, and then it's the other way around. So essentially, you have like one and a half people on this island. and if you actually leave uh, the beach area and the little hut area where uh, Sid is, and you go out into the island, you can uh, go into battle just by yourself. 
um, with that scary organ music that I mentioned earlier. And you're really all alone. And I don't know if you or any of the listeners uh, had this experience, but I thought it was terrifying just being the only person left in the party. You know, there was no one to put a phoenix down in my mouth, and or not in my mouth, it's a it's feathers. So sprinkle the feathers on me. Um, there was no one to use life. It's interesting that we're talking about uh, going off by yourself because there is something about the end of the world that we naturally assume that it's going to be us. You know, there's uh, when the world ends in Final Fantasy VI here and everybody starts dying and continents start collapsing. I don't think most people playing assume that that's actually going to be the end of the game, that all of their player characters are going to be dead and. when they, you know, the game's just going to be over. No, they assume that eventually they're going to wake up as at least one of their player characters and get to keep playing on, which I think ties into one thing that's uh, true about pop culture treatment of the end of the world more generally, which is that people kind of assume that when the world ends, they'll be fighting off the zombie hordes and not part of the zombie hordes. Yeah, uh, isn't that part of our, uh, I don't know, narcissism as a people? I I wonder if in any other country's art that's not always the case. Maybe that's just an American thing, but I don't think so. I guess um, I guess in Japanese post-apocalyptic literature or video games or whatever, yeah, you you are the last person on Earth and not the the dead people. Yeah, so I guess you're right. I guess you're right completely. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that, so I'm going to throw it back to you again. I mean, part of it's just the nature of fiction, which is that the story of the people that become zombies, generally speaking, are not the most interesting stories to be told. Or, or certainly As you. In, right, or certainly the in the apocalypse, like when the, the continents start collapsing, sure, you're most likely to be one of the random NPCs that falls into the ocean along with everybody else, but you're playing a video game and the video game lets you be the hero and the hero doesn't die along with everybody else. So it's just kind of inherent in the medium that you're going to be following the story of the person that survives the apocalypse and not surviving one of the random mooks who doesn't. Sure. Um, When I'm thinking about this part of the game, what struck me this time that I never really thought about, um, so you're alone as Celeste, in this little house with Sid, and you're nursing him back to health, and then when he dies, um, you find a note that says, oh, go down into the basement, and there's a raft there that you can take off uh, to, to freedom, or I guess not really freedom, but to go off and find your friends. And this time I was wondering, wait, if there was a raft down there all along, why didn't he just tell Celeste to begin with and she could go and leave him and maybe find help or they could go together even though he was sick? It seems very uh, disturbing to me that he would keep this means of escape down in the basement, um, I guess theoretically because he knew he was falling ill and if Celis had a way to leave, maybe she wouldn't nurse him back to help. But I never thought of Sid as um, this devious fellow. But now, I don't know, like, what is he hiding under that raincoat? It could be anything at this point. I don't trust the guy. So, I mean, it's really interesting to think about that because um, when you think about something like The Road, it's one person, you know, father figure protecting this other weaker person. Um, 
and this sort of turns it on its head where Celis is protecting Sid, but you know, there's this little bit of evidence that the game doesn't really underline, but I see that maybe he's not the best person. Maybe, yes, he's weak, but maybe maybe we shouldn't save Sid. How about that, listeners? <laughs> maybe we shouldn't. Maybe he deserves to die. Well, I mean, it does raise an interesting question. Was he just saving you because by doing so, that would save himself down the road? I mean, it's possible. We think of Sid as this upstanding fellow but he did work for the empire now to be fair Silas did too but you know once an imperial always imperial no no that's not nice that's not nice at all um but yes i don't i don't necessarily uh trust him as far as i can throw him on that count um i was going to say something else about Silas and sid but yeah, I don't me, remember me, what it was. Let me move us on to a slightly different topic about Please. kind of about the end of the world. There's a, I would say, a, a theory that the end of the world is kind of the way we work. The end of the world in fiction is the way we work out kind of what's what the angst in our current society. You know, you look at 1950s or 1960s fiction, and by far the most common way that the world ends is something to do with nuclear power or nuclear weapons or nuclear something, because that was what was honestly the most likely thing to end the world at the time. And I think in the last 10 or 20 years, it's much more common that there's an environmental theme, that somehow it's been we've wasted the planet's resources or we've kind of tampered with forces beyond our control and they're going to come back and get us. And so or I guess, plague or something similar, but yeah, they all overlap definitely for sure. Right, and you know the the mechanism can sometimes differ, but I feel like you know in the fifties it might be the aliens that end the world, but the aliens end the world because the humans are too dangerous with their nuclear weapons. Whereas now the aliens come down and try to destroy the world, and it's because the humans are not taking care of their environment, so they must be destroyed. It's the the mechanism changes, but the the kind of underlying angst. Uh, or say the the mechanism might say the same, but the underlying angst changes uh, as we go. So I guess I'm at, I guess what I'm building up to is what is what is Final Fantasy angsty about? Well, I don't I don't want to go this far all the time, but I did write um, a piece a while ago for Overthinking It about Paranoia Agent, where I <laughs> overgeneralized and said that a lot of Japanese art. Um, and literature, video games, etc., has to be about the bomb, and so I think in this case, uh, that's part of it as well. Um, yeah, it's hard to know exactly what it is, but I can't imagine that <laughs> at this point in history it wouldn't be part of it. I mean, I'm thinking of other properties from Japan in that period, like the, the 90s and 80s, Miyazaki um, had that uh, a lot of post-apocalyptic elements like Nausicaa, um, which sort of seemed like the world had been bombed to nothing, and then sort of nature took over again, and then um, there might have been an environmental disaster either caused by nuclear weapons or just uh, caused by humanity in some other way. And then nature comes back and sort of uh, uh, comes back with a vengeance, I guess you would say. Um, so that was around the same time period. Um, so uh, it's hard to know, though, because you think about 
Kefka is sort of acting like this god uh, raining down fire and brimstone on the people. And he's just this element of chaos. Now, maybe you could say he's supposed to represent um, the chaos that comes, like maybe he's some sort of um, weapon of mass destruction almost. Like uh, the Empire thought they could contain him. And he is magical. Like He was infused with magic. He's supposed to be a weapon. Um, even though it went horribly wrong. Um, so, yeah, they think that they can control him, but then he blows up and does whatever the heck he wants. Um, so I guess in that sense, if you see him as a metaphor, maybe, <laughs> then you can go down that road. Um, yeah, does that make any sense to you? Are you thinking something else? No, I think it does. The, 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 the thing that's interesting to me is this idea that these these statues are somehow keeping these forces in perfect alignment and so once you start screwing with them it what causes the end of the world is not kefka's power per se but him upsetting the balance that what was otherwise balanced in the world and it this scene reminded me very much of uh another game from the 90s a little later in the 90s uh the legend of zelda ocarina of time which has a very similar plot element in that you complete a bunch of quests, you do what you're finally trying to do, you unlock the magical world, and then the bad guy shows up and enter, beats you and enters the magical world and ruins everything. Um, of course, the, this is the scene in the Temple of Time in uh, Ocarina where you open it up and Ganon shows up, and then you fall asleep for seven years and wake up and the world is this burned-out husk of a place. So I think there's something interesting going on here about the idea of having kind of forces that must be in alignment. And then once you give kind of evil or mad men access to these forces, they will they will throw these forces off. And at that point, you can't control them and they'll completely just kind of consume everything. They'll be contaminated and no longer serve the purpose that they're meant to serve in the world. And I don't know exactly how that maps onto real-world angst, but I think there's definitely a theme in in video games about this idea of forces and alignment that are thrown off once the, the villain has access to them. Yeah, actually, once you were using the word balance, I was thinking of some other games where um, there's a balance that has to be struck. Um, I was thinking of this game that I played a while ago, also from the 90s, called Arcanum, um, which is sort of obscure, but it was about... Um, you have to strike a balance between sort of like magical stuff and technology. And I think that's a theme in a lot of, of video games and a lot of uh, just, you know, fantasy literature, um, steampunk, that sort of thing. And Final Fantasy VI, you could characterize as a steampunk game, I would say. So, yeah, maybe the balance that needs to be struck or what we fear is that there is something with technology where we have to use it just enough to make life better for us. But if we use it just a little more than that, then we're going to screw something up very badly. Um, and I guess we don't have magic in the real world, but maybe it, it represents some sort of natural force. Um, so there's a balance between technology and nature. And when you, uh, you know, move the, metaphorical statues in one direction you know too much towards technology and something you know humanity will blow up the world basically um and i guess if you can move uh too much towards the other side toward nature then you know we're going back to pre-civilization 
Um, and I guess we just, you know, don't have medicine or whatever. Yeah, so maybe that's what they're going for. This game obviously has things like Magitech where they're, you know, blurring the lines between one and the other. Um, so I think that's probably what they might be going for here, question mark. <laughs> no, I think I think that focus on balance, uh, it, you know, I can't help but wonder if part of that is the needs of game development kind of creeping into the narrative in, in a sense that balance is something that we talk about with a video game uh, completely outside the narrative. We talk about the, the game part of it being balanced. You know, it, if you're criticizing a game for being unbalanced, you're saying that either the hero is too powerful, so it's too easy or a cert- if it's like a massively multiplayer online role-playing game or a, you know, multiplayer shooting game, if one class of character is overpowered, then it's, the game is unbalanced and it becomes less fun. So balance, at a certain point, becomes kind of the goal of any game designer. You, I'm thinking of, like, Civilization Two, where you want all the different aspects of the game. And, of course, that's, I'm dating myself by saying Civilization Two and not any of the more recent games. But, uh, you know, a real-time strategy or a civilization builder or, like, SimCity... Usually what you're shooting for, completely outside the plot, usually these games have very little plot, uh, certainly no pre-scripted plot, what you're shooting for above all else is balance. You can't let any indicator get too far out of whack or it starts doing crazy things to your civilization. Um, And so I can't help but wonder if there's... You know, a connection between the the game designer's need for balance and the game scripter's, you know desire to have balance in the plot of the video game as well so in this uh, analogy then the empire is a you know square video game developer and they screwed up by making kefka overpowered and now he's basically taking over their game um and destroying it because he uh, has you know his hit points are too high and he has you know too many cool magic attacks and no one can really beat him at this point but you can imagine if Kepka wasn't there then Sabin would have to be the you know king of the world because he's just so powerful because you know if you compare him to someone like Setzer you know obviously not a good balance there so way to screw up Square um, yeah so I, I like this little this little analogy here Ben. Yeah, yeah. Thinking more about it. I'll have to think more about it. But yes, I think it works. Well, while we're thinking on that, let's uh, let's move on to one other thing that I think Jordan raised on the, the forums. That one specific thing that I thought was interesting, uh, which is this idea. He said specifically he was talking about uh, the fish scene. Where we're back to the fish scene, where he, he replayed the game, knowing that there's a way of feeding him enough fish in the right order and the, the right of the right type that you save Sid. Uh, but he didn't do it. Uh, just because he kind of felt like that was the more natural thing to do. And he was wondering about what it says when you're playing a video game. You know that something bad is going to happen if you take certain actions and you do it anyway. And I, I was struck on the both on the micro level of the fish scene and other similar scenes in games, but also just kind of on the macro level of if you've played Final Fantasy VI before, if you care at all about the you know the world of final fantasy 6 you would just stop playing right before the end of the world because that's the only way to save the world there's no other way to play this game where the world doesn't get destroyed and almost everybody doesn't die uh, you know in the same way that like there's no way to play through ocarina of time without letting ganon get a hold of the triforce and everybody dies 
um, you know, there's no just no way to do it. So if you don't want that to happen, you you know, the only way to win is not to play, as we all know. Uh, but of course, we're going to do it because we want to play the game. That's what we're there for. We're going to play through the game, whether it's you know causes the consequence or not. And I just wonder if you have any reaction to that. Well, the question I have now is, as a player, is our goal? Do we want to save the world? Uh, what, what's the world done for us? I mean, we've played through the first half of the game, and the world provided this gameplay. Okay, sure. But uh, for me, the reason, the main reason I play Final Fantasy games is, yeah, partially for the gameplay, but mostly for the story and the characters. And, you know, when the world ends, there's such good character development. So if you stop playing the game before then, then, you know, you're not going to have Tara being like, I know what love is, you know. You're not going to have uh, all the other characters, you know, letting go of their past. So th- this is a game where, you know, all right, the world ends, but it was needed for growth. So, you know, it's sort of like therapy for all of uh, our player characters. So I feel like that is why I decided to let Sid die. I, let me give you some a biography of Shannon. When I was a child and I played Final Fantasy VI, I remember not saving Sid um, because I didn't know what to do. And there were no walkthroughs for little Shana. So sad. So I killed him. And I was very upset about this. I was like, oh, my God. And I assumed that there was no way I could stop it. Well, later in my life, I played the game again, probably in high school or college, and I knew better. I was an adult, so I had read the walkthroughs, and I, you know, took out the good fish um, meticulously uh, from the ocean and saved Sid, and then I didn't feel, like, better about it because I saved his life and I made the world a better place. I just felt good because I did what, you know, I won the level. I I beat uh, this little mini game of Saving Sid. So that wasn't, I don't know, very satisfactory. This time around, I let Sid die. And you know what? Maybe that says something terrible about me as a person, probably. Um, but my devotion is to the narrative and the character development. And I knew from playing the game before that it's just way more satisfying um, for Celis' character arc if Sid dies. Um, I need the pathos. I want her to walk up that cliff, um, sort of uh, mirroring the opera scene where uh, she throws herself off into the water. Because, um, you know, if he lives, you don't, you don't get that. Um, it just makes her character better. I believe Jordan said the same thing in the forums. Um, so I guess that makes us terrible people. But if you are playing the game from the perspective of, I want to see the story play out, and I want to see these characters get their climaxes, and, you know, it's not like in the real world where character, not characters, people have an end point to their stories where they have learned their lesson and everything has come full circle and you feel really good about it. No, that doesn't happen in real life. So you do want to save the world because the world is great, whatever. But in video game world, there is a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And if the writers have done their jobs right, and this isn't a piece of literary fiction, this is a you know a romance, a fantasy story, a fairy tale, basically, you know that all of the characters are going to hit a point 
um, a, a conclusion. And if you stop the game before the world ends, and if you don't let Sid die, then the characters, as particularly Celis, don't get to that end point, and you don't get the catharsis, and that is the reason I play this game. And other people might disagree, they might prefer to min-max their characters and get all the cool items, but that is why I play, so that is why I kill Sid. The end. Come at me, bros. That is what I'm doing. And every time I play this game from now on, I will kill Sid and feel good about it. Much like Walter White, I'm just going to look on and just watch him die. I'm not going to turn him over. He's just going to die. So, so let me ask you this. You, you, you're, you're walking in the desert, and you see a tortoise. And you reach down, and you flip it on its back. And it's baking in the hot sun. But it can't turn over without your help. And you're not helping. Why is that, Shayna? Is this in a real-world situation or in a video game situation? This is me testing to see if you're a replicant using the uh, the Void Comp <laughs> test from Blade Runner. So, you know. I'm like, I think I've heard this one before. <laughs> um, let me take out my neon umbrella because it's, it's raining. Um, no, if it were the real world, of course I would save him. But if it was video game world and I um, was a playable character and... I, myself, Shayna, were watching a TV screen or a computer screen, watching Shayna Avatar make this decision, I would probably let the turtle or tortoise die because I knew that it would create some sort of crisis within my character that would lead to, if not good places for my character, at least very dramatically interesting places. So and I am not a replicant or a psychopath, I think. But as a video game player, I'm probably, yes, a little bit. But it's for a good reason. It is for the story. So that that's my excuse. Right. And I, I suppose I'm being hard on, not really hard on, but, you know, we're, we're talk, focusing on video games and how you do the same things over and over and, you know, expect different results, but of course you don't expect different results, you know, it's going to happen. But it's really no different from popping in a DVD with a sad ending. Like, if you like Old Yeller, every time you watch the movie, Old Yeller dies. And that, like, it's no different, I suppose, than starting and playing the game, and every time you move through the game, the world ends. Uh, But there's something about uh, the, the Ludo narrative, there we go, I brought it in, uh, that's different because we're controlling at least part of the game. Uh, but in a sense, we're really just flipping pages. We're really just, you know, manipulating the story in a way to get to the next chunk of story. Oh, now I have to ask you, Ben, if you were playing the video game of Old Yeller, would you save him? Would you make sure that he didn't die? Uh, I mean, I would try, but if I were actually playing the video game Old Yeller, like, you can't do that, or it's not the story of Old Yeller. It's some other right. story. Like, so, yeah, that, that would be unfortunate. Um, so that would yeah, be a so, really So you're basically game. me. Right. We're, we're both replicants. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think that's an interesting place to end it. Any other video games uh, that, that at the end of the world that you, you want to you wanna bring up here? Oh, uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout-out to Shadow of the Colossus, which um, is a beautiful video game. When Roger Ebert um, was saying that video games weren't art, this was one of the ones that people brought up uh, to, you know, support their thesis that, no, video games can be art, this is great. Um, 
And so here's another spoiler. Um, so you are in this game. It is a post-apocalyptic landscape. You, it seems like your character and this, uh, I guess, corpse of your girlfriend are the only two people left um, on this planet, although maybe there are others outside the borders of the video game world, but you can't. Uh, you know, there, there are walls that you can't climb over because it's a video game. Um, and there are these giant uh, colossi that are these monsters that are sort of stone, and you kill them um, because the, the game wants you to, and it's supposed to help you uh, bring your girlfriend back to life, if I'm remembering correctly. And toward the end of the game, you realize that these aren't evil beasts. They're, they're gentle giants, and killing them is just uh, bad for everyone, in, including you. Um but you know what? I played the game a second time knowing that. The first time it's like, oh no, what have I done? And the second time you're like, yeah, I know it. I'm going to kill him. Whatever. This is a game. I want, I want to, I want to get to the end of the game. I want to get to that moment where my character has the realization, even though I've already had the realization before. Um, I just, I want to see that moment of anagnoresis. Um, that I can't experience anymore, but the, my playable character, my avatar can. So, um, so I think what we've agreed on is that even if we found out that the, the candy had like a really intense and interesting and empathetic backstory, we would still crush the said candy. <laughs> no, because we all read Jordan Stokes' article on right. .com, um that said that we should never play Candy Crush, and we should never play Candy Crush. The end. The end. Well, I think we'll, we'll leave our little side quest there. We'll, uh, we'll hopefully be able to pick up uh, the rest of our party and continue on with uh, week five, uh, which will be taking us through Daryl's tomb. Uh, for those listening, thanks for, uh, for accompanying us on our little uh, quest through the end of the world here. Uh, in the meantime, we've got lots of great content uh, on the uh, on our website. We've got over other podcasts that I've mentioned here. And you can find all of that at www.overthinking.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Ah, uh, Solo Bolo achieved. High five, Ben. I ain't heard no fat lady. <laughs>